0: The Future of SMART, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of
1: education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical reenvisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of Ed Funders, author of the award winning book, The Future of Smart, and your host. Listeners who've been with us since the beginning of season one have heard us explore why it can feel so hard to shift how we do education. And if you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to season one, but I'll give a summary here for all of you. So often when we design or redesign schools and curricula, we're using templates that were invented during the scientific revolution in Europe back in the 1500s. Before this period, most societies viewed the world as a living system designed by goddesses, gods, driven by the spirits of plants and animals. Humans thought of themselves as part of that whole, immersed in it, subject to it, and in awe of it. This is the basis of what we in this podcast call a holistic indigenous worldview. As we learned in the early episodes of season one, during the scientific revolution, philosophers and scientists found a new way to study and understand the world by putting human beings apart from it, becoming objective observers. They wanted to know how the world was made, to be able to take things apart and rebuild them, to predict what was going to happen and know why. Many thinkers have referred to this new worldview as Cartesian-Newtonian after the thinkers who influenced it the most. As Europeans colonized the world, this view was exported out of Europe and displaced rather than integrated the holistic indigenous worldview that was dominant in other parts of the world at the time. It's now the dominant way in which most of us view the world, though, as we've heard, holistic indigenous values didn't disappear. They just became less visible, especially in how our systems are designed. The Cartesian-Newtonian worldview brought us the conventional factory model of education that we know today. It views learning as linear and structured and neglects the other forms of knowing and intelligence that human beings are capable of. It standardizes people. It labels and stigmatizes the ones who don't fit. So by design, many students get left behind. And most of us recognize that this model of education isn't aligned with what young people need to thrive in life as people, citizens, or workers. We've been attempting to reform and innovate how we do school, but haven't seen the kind of progress we would have expected. This podcast asks us to look deeper to understand why change is so hard. We've gotten to hear from many leaders who are trying to build new ways of working that are grounded in a different set of values. In season one, episode three, Jonathan Santos Silva and Josie Green described their work in education in the context of holistic Indigenous systems, which work more like ecosystems and less like factories. In Episode 8, we learned about the Prepared Project, which studied 70 schools and districts, all of which had chosen before COVID to adopt or build learning models grounded in holistic Indigenous values. We heard that these learning models are grounded in deep relationships. They emphasize holistic well-being and development for both young people and adults. They encourage young people to own their learning, to embrace complexity and failure as part of the learning process, to engage in real-world learning and problem-solving. As we know, the vast majority of schools in the US today don't reflect these values. Building schools or shifting how they operate to reflect holistic Indigenous mindsets and values is complex and subtle. It requires a shift in the mindset that educators and young people bring to their work, and it also requires design choices and the development of systems both inside the school and outside that support this shift. The fact that this work is so complex accounts for the reality that while we have many bright spots of practice— Individual programs or even districts attempting to do this work, no one has managed to scale or to replicate these programs so that they're accessible to all students. Over the next few episodes, we're going to explore some of the structures we need to design differently if we really want to design education in a way that works for all students, and more importantly, makes this kind of education available to all students and communities, especially those most marginalized in the current system. So we'll start today with the idea of competency-based education. In Season 1, Episode 4, Dr. Pam Cantor reminded us that healthy human development is jagged and irregular. It progresses differently for individual children based on numerous factors, including genetics, environment, experiences, and even personality. She also reminded us that academic development is inextricable from human development. If we're going to design an education system that nurtures and supports human development, we need to think deeply about the kinds of experiences, settings, and interactions that allow young people to grow according to their own strengths and potential, rather than forcing them down narrow channels that are lined with assessments and stigma. Our current approach of organizing content and skills into grade-level standards and highly sequenced curriculum assumes that all students can and will learn in lockstep. That's why there's increasing interest in competency-based approaches to organizing learning. Competency-based approaches clearly articulate the outcomes that students need to demonstrate, and they allow students to show what they know whenever they happen to master it. Organizing outcomes in this way better accounts for individual development and learning. They allow us to be more flexible in thinking about how and when learning happens, and counting learning that happens outside of formal educational settings. A focus on competencies opens the door for families, out-of-school providers, and community organizations to become part of a broader educational ecosystem. And it allows us to value the knowledge and skills that young people already have in the form of multiple languages, their family and community's cultural roots, and their passions. Any approach to education that hopes to be truly human-centered, personalized, and equitable has to adopt some form of competency-based education. But as with many things, the term competency-based is now being used to describe a wide range of practices. Our guest today, Lori Gagnon, is the Program Director for Competency Works at the Aurora Institute. This initiative shares promising practices that are shaping the future of K-12 competency-based education. Join us for a conversation in which Lori helps us imagine how competency-based approaches play out in programs that are on the leading edge of the push to reimagine how we articulate the outcomes we want for all students and organize learning and assessment to match those aspirations. Welcome, Lori. Thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. I want to start where we always start on this podcast, which is understanding that our personal stories, our our personal journeys are often such a big part of the work that we do. So introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about um, how you got to be doing the work you do today and what makes you so passionate about it. I often reflect on that.
0: I grew up in a a tiny town, a paper mill town in northern New Hampshire. Uh, My parents got married really young. Um, They Graduated high school, they didn't go to college. And at some point, for some, at some point, I realized that the world was not all French Canadian and Catholic, (laughs) and realized that there was a lot to explore. And I think back in my own schooling, and I certainly had opportunities for leadership, for doing um, things that my parents didn't have opportunities for, like learning a musical instrument, um, you know doing kind of summer programs and that set me on a trajectory um, into a liberal arts education i I was a sociology anthropology major and i I sometimes think about how that really shaped things as well for me because it's so interdisciplinary and it's so much about observing patterns and understanding culture and how we interact and why we do the things we do Um, and so that that led me, along with a minor in Japanese, led me to teach uh, in Japan. So after a few years of teaching in Japan, I came back um, and became a high school history teacher. I, I often think about my my teaching time, and if I only knew what I, I know now back then, I would have been a very different teacher. Um, so I was like very well-meaning, but I think didn't really have the support to engage in like the bigger, deeper questions um, that I wanted to, you know, that I I wanted to like create opportunities for my students to discuss. Um, And over time, you know, I could see the ways that the sort of our structures, didn't really allow teachers to or anyone to raise bigger questions about our purpose and about who was getting access to which opportunities. And I started to feel as though um, I either need to change this or I become like complicit in it. And so that brought me into this work, supporting schools and districts and states in creating ways for students to authentically learn and demonstrate their learning. And that was a natural connection right into these bigger systems around, um, what you know, what is the purpose and can we design around the bigger ideas and really truly prepare students for the world um, that lies ahead that we know is rapidly changing.
1: So um, you gave me a great opening, you know, the future of SMART the podcast is exploring what it's going to take for us to move towards a more human-centered, learner-centered approach to education that reflects some really important realities about the world today, right? Knowledge doubles about every 13 hours, which means that there's no set of content that's ever going to prepare young people for what they need. Um, human development and learning right, are jagged. They're non-linear. We're all unique um, and we need to have an education system that honors that. And with AI and, and non Biological intelligence, human beings, there's a really important question about how we lean into our comparative strengths. And if we want to get from where we are to where we want to go, there are a lot of things that need to change. Um, But there seems to be broad agreement that moving to a more competency based system is a really big lever. So that is where we are going to jump in today. Um, You work with the Aurora Institute that has supported the growth of competency based education. So I'm going to give you a layperson's definition. Um, of what competency-based frameworks are, and maybe you can just react to it, flesh it out a bit. Instead of organizing around discrete subjects, programs that adopt a competency-based approach concentrate on transferable skills like communication, thinking, or personal qualities. They lay out a set of expectations that learners must meet in order to demonstrate what they know and what they can do with what they know. Learning is visibly demonstrated and assessed over time by multiple methods and multiple assessors. What's your reaction? Where does that fall short? Yeah, I mean, I think that
0: is a wonderful start. I'll just add a little bit and reinforce. So it's really this learner-centered framework um, and the way that Aurora Institute thinks of it that is really ensuring that every student, no matter what their abilities, learns what they need to learn in order to thrive. So it's really designed around the learner and their evidence of learning, not around time. And I think that that most of us, right, we we want we believe that learning is the goal of the current system. But when we kind of unpack that and think it through, um, we realize that it's not actually the main the main focus of our our status quo, typical system. So. You know, for example, we when we're thinking about moving through the curriculum like we're done this unit, we take a test, um, okay, you got seventy percent or sometimes even sixty percent, and we don't even know if the learner like missed something essential in their learning. So the learning is obscured uh, in service of moving everyone through the system and it then becomes just a a, a sorting and ranking and hopefully learners learn enough um, that they can navigate the world. So CBE is really designing around those learning outcomes. So those learning goals are known by the learner and they have choices in their learning. We're paying attention to learning in different ways and demonstrating in different ways and the student having choices in their learning. So it's not just learning for a demonstration on um, this assessment. The learner has that ownership. Um, and they know what their skills are and their knowledge, and then they can then have choices in where and how they're going to apply that.
1: I remember somebody explaining competency based and using the, the sort of illustration of teach of swimming. And they're like, you know, in your current system, you would say swimming. And if you know swimming, you maybe know how to spell it, you know, kind of the definition of it. You can maybe describe what a front stroke is and a stroke is and a backstroke is. Um, and then we assume you know it. Competency-based education would say, you know how to swim if you can swim. And so if, let's get a little bit more concrete um, for folks who are listening. So I went ahead and found an example of competency-based education that the OECD uses that's based on work that is done in British Columbia. So they have a lot of different competencies. I named some of them at the beginning, thinking, communication, personal and social competencies. So for communication, there are sort of four examples they give. So for kindergarten, what communications means and what it means for a student to be competent is that they share observations and ideas orally. For third-graders, they represent and communicate ideas and findings in a variety of ways, such as diagrams and simple reports, using digital technologies as appropriate. By the time you get to 10th grade, communication means that you can communicate scientific ideas, information, and perhaps a suggested course of action for a specific purpose and audience, constructing evidence-based arguments and using appropriate scientific language, conventions, and and representations. Let's unpack that. Tell us a little bit about why a frame like that is actually useful and how it helps us further some of the goals you named, which is choices for young people, um, appreciating that things can be variable in terms of pace or order, individualizing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think Right, it it starts to shift everyone's um, mindset into what I'm doing now is not just for now, right? It is building on something for the long term, and you know some of these might seem like, oh well, of course. course, we think like what you learn in first grade will help you in second grade. Um, But this is making that very intentional and explicit and bringing awareness to it um, so that what you're doing now is is purposeful, not only for the short term and for the moment, but is
1: part you're on a pathway, a progression that's going to develop over time. I remember going to a school where they had a sort of framework kind of like this posted up on the wall around what communication was. And I remember talking to a, a young man who was, he was six. And I remember, him telling me, he's like, here's where I am right now. And here, and he pointed to this box of what might be the, a variety of ways, diagrams, simple reports using digital technologies. He's like, so now I was just learning how to make graphs on my computer because that's a different way, right? I'm not just talking about it. I'm showing it. So from a student Vantage point, it's actually giving them a vision of where they're going and making explicit to him, like a variety of ways, such as diagrams. And he was like, Great, so I need to figure out how to make a diagram and was learning how to do it. So all of a sudden, the agency was with him of saying, If I want to get to the next level, you know, here's what I need to do. So there's something about that that feels really powerful. And this all needs to be cultivated and taught, I think, to learners.
0: The the culture is, how do I produce what the teacher is asking me to? So this shift is, is making the focus on the learning, that this is learning that is for me, that I'm going to use. Once I can see the destination, I can then choose a path, right? I'm aware that I'm going to do this with intention. And we know that that's something that, leads to lasting learning, right? Because now I'm tinkering and investigating um, different modes, or how do I do something a little bit differently, but still realize it's um, another way, right, to communicate. Um, And I can then be kind of digging into those nuances, learning how to learn. Um, And more and more we're Seeing that those skills are in demand in the workforce, it's what communities want for their students as well, that they're able to adapt and
1: um, meet the challenges that are unfolding in our world. So saying you're representing and communicating ideas, it allows a student to actually decide, hey, my interest is in dinosaurs or my interest is in like my family's cultural background. There's lots of things you can communicate about, but it's sort of agnostic and in some ways allows a student more choice, um, allows them to have something that is representative of their interests or their community in ways that like normal standards don't because it's big enough to be specific about what you need to do but open enough to kind of give some room does that resonate with what yeah, you've seen and
0: very much competency based education is typically built around um around the transferable skills and the dispositions um that are transferable across disciplines and contexts but you still need to think about something (laughs) you need to Mm -hmm. collaborate around something right the a problem is going to have content um specifics and concepts that you need to know so that doesn't go away um but it is it shifts it from being around um not just covering content to amass the knowledge, because that's we have access, as you mentioned before, like how much knowledge is growing, and but also how much we have access to that, right? Um, you know, it's not that many that many decades ago that when you were reading the book, right? This is your chance to know this knowledge, because you might have to give that book back and not mm-hmm. have it at your fingertips. Um, so the content knowledge still is in play, but um, its relationship is is different, right?
1: Yeah. No, and I appreciate you naming, right? So often we get into these binaries of it's, oh, it's content or these skills. And I think of it too, is like, what's being, what's driving what? So if the content is driving, oftentimes what kids don't do is sort of have the opportunity to think about these other skills, these other pieces. But if the If, let's say, 10th grade, you're communicating scientific ideas, information, and a suggested course of action for a specific purpose and audience, constructing evidence-based arguments and using appropriate scientific language conventions and representations, if the problem you decide you want to communicate about is climate change or, um, you know, international refugees um, and policies, there's going to be a ton of content inside of that problem. So the content is not driving one other thing, though, that, that, that I was thinking about is when you frame things this way, it gives clarity and visibility not only for a student, but also for educators, parents, the broader community. How does framing things in a competency-based way open up our kind of vision around where learn ha- learning happens, how it happens, with whom it happens, and why does that matter?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. The idea of focusing around the learning and not just kind of going through the curriculum altogether is that we can say, oh, well, there are a lot of places that we're learning. It opens up the possibilities for learning that you know, learning is not the same as just the learning that happens in school within the walls of a classroom. Um, so it like offers opportunities to make it more permeable between like formal schooling, like learning in school, and then how we apply that. Um, and I think that there's a bunch of there's a whole spectrum of ways to do that but i think it starts to answer the question about well why are we learning this you know it helps it to say okay there's a context here and i can then um interact with the world around me so whether that's within a school or classroom like in a project or seeing kind of the application or actually getting out into the world and saying you know where what are the community needs and how can we apply what we're learning to solve those things? Um, You know, it opens up those possibilities. And some of that can be done collectively, right? Um, As a group or a class, and it can also be done independently, right? CTE, like Career and Technical Education um, offers us when done well, right? Offers us some insight into this as well, like actually getting experience to do the job. And so it opens up all these new spaces for you know, relevant and meaningful learning and, and seeing how things connect. So there's kind of different entry points to thinking about, um, you know, where, where those opportunities are for learners and that it can be um, happening in school, but can also happen outside of school.
1: And from an equity perspective, the reality is that parents and families with means um, often make choices and do things because they are very aware of the learning that is happening when they take their child to a museum or on a trip where they maybe miss five days in school. They are aware of it whether or not we have the systems to count it. They know that there is learning happening there and we know that the gaps right, um, between students who have those kinds of opportunities and students who don't actually widen over time. And so framing learning in this way starts to open up um, the kinds of opportunities that I think we Would say are valuable for all students because we are sort of saying that the learning can happen there. I often think, you know, how interesting it would be if every parent, when their child was born, got a little card that said, you know, between birth and five, your kid needs to be able to know and do the following things. They need to be able to communicate orally, they need to be able to like take care of themselves at home. But you make it visible, I think of it almost like a bingo board. And actually, so parents are like, oh, they have to learn how to do this. Well, this can happen when we're visiting our. Family, or this can happen when I'm cooking with Abuela in the in the kitchen, right? Or this can happen when um, they're at summer camp, and it opens up um, opportunity and making use of the opportunity that so many of our children have that aren't necessarily seen in schools. I love that um,
0: that idea, and I think that it um, to kind of bring out one thing that I think comes through with that. It's about the intention, right? It's knowing what the skills are, right? Then makes you see the world in a different way, right? You see then the opportunities. And I think that that's kind of a key piece of um, a shift to a competency-based system is that ability to observe and reflect and, um, and think about like, oh, this experience helped me to learn these things. Um, it, it invites a kind of broader kind of reflection to say, oh, what did I learn in this situation, right? And then the competency progression or framework, um, you can you can make different connections, right? We can have a similar experience, but maybe be focusing on, um, on a different aspect. And I think that is a natural thing, right? Because we have different inclinations or we see different things in different moments, um, but being able to then connect it helps us to then
1: Um, process that, oh, I've had this experience and I took away these things. It's just broadening and enriching our conception of what learning is, what it looks like. And you know, we throw this phrase around a ton, lifelong learning. We want lifelong learners. Well, part and parcel of that is actually having a mindset that learning doesn't just happen when you enroll in an online class or you're in a classroom with a teacher. It's everything is a moment where I'm learning, whether I'm aware of that or not is different. And that mindset shift that you were describing feels like a really, important piece. Um, I want to just switch text a little bit because my observation is that competency-based education, people use that phrase and often mean very different things. So how are competencies different, for example, from academic standards or academic substandards? Because I think there are some people who will think about competency-based as taking a standard and saying each of the substandards is a competency. Can you unpack that or help make that a little bit clearer for us? Yeah. So, I mean, on one level, like they are the
0: same in that they're learning goals, right? They're learning goals of the system, and we're working towards helping learners learn and demonstrate them. And so, you know, you could then design a competency based system around, you know, smaller targets like you're talking about or these bigger ones. I think in practice though, there's this distinction of measuring every small little piece as those little competencies that lead to the outcome versus what we've been talking about, right? Are these broader, more transferable trajectories um, that apply across contexts. So I think we could pull out the skill components of, that are embedded within standards. And when we kind of start to align them in a progression, we might start to see that those skills actually are, um, are a continuum and a progression that's leading in a trajectory, but that gets obscured when I, you know, see like grade one, um, comprehension standard. And I see grade three, like, you know, 10 pages later, right. It's not connected in that way. I think standards tend to be more like, okay, we're going to focus on this and we're going to focus on the next thing. And the competencies is trying to emphasize that there's, um, that these builds upon one another. Um, and that you're bringing attention to that larger picture. And I think the other standards, though, are more about the content knowledge, right? The the content is like in competency-based, it tends to be like a vehicle through which we're developing the transferable skills and dispositions. And I think it tends to live in the curriculum itself. Like, what are the learning experiences that we're going to explore? Um, what's that roadmap of conceptual development and exposure to different um, disciplines that happens in service of, right, um, demonstrating these transferable competency skills um, that we're designing around. So our communication example that we've been unpacking um, that can be applied, right, across disciplines, uh, across contexts to multiple goals, but it's in service. We're not trying to cover every possible content standard and that ownership, right? I think our most current standards are designed for teachers and educators. They're not designed really for students, right? Whereas a competency framework really truly should be accessible to a student. Again, with with support to understand
1: what they're looking at and how to think about it, yeah. I, I think you named something super important because I actually did. I spent two years doing research and went to schools and sort of said to them, I'm like, look, do you actually cover all of the standards You know, in the thousand pages of standards? And without exception, um, when people are being honest, they're like, no. And everyone talked about power standards, right? These are the ones we've decided are the most important and most of the rest, like maybe some kids get them through certain things. But so we sometimes, are, I think, are having a conversation about whether <clears throat> something like a competency-based progression is better with this unsaid assumption that in the current system, we're somehow doing all the stuff we say we do. We know that's not true. So I'd love it if you could give us some examples. And let's start with elementary. Five to eight-year-olds are different than 15 to 18-year-olds. You know, in the younger years, there's probably more consistency across the basic competencies, skills, content that young people need because it's creating the building blocks for future learning. By the time students get to high school, we know that they're going to be going on different kind of pathways post-leaving that that formal education space, and so there's probably more variability. So let's start with elementary. Can you just describe to us a a place or a program that you've seen, whether you want to name it or not, um, that does this work with elementary and how it sort of plays out, what it looks like? I think at the elementary level, you know, there's a little bit more of a
0: of more concrete in learning standards and making sure that you that we know where kids are at on different ones where I've seen kind of start, starting to shift into um, a kind of competency-based mindset where it's, um, again, kind of just starting to push of meeting kids where they're at and that all kids don't need to be at the same place at the same time. Westminster Public Schools and Lindsay Unified and Harrisburg, um, South Dakota are examples of places where they're really clear on um, what it means to learn whatever those learning targets are, um, and we're really going to make an effort to make sure that all kids learn these um, and that they don't move on with gaps in their learning. So we're trying to prioritize the, you know, the kind of conceptual basics, right, for social sciences and science um, and the arts and other, um, other disciplines, and really allowing students to work at their own pace and make sure that students demonstrate those. I think the other piece about a competency-based system that comes into play here is the idea of not yet. You're working where you are, and we you are, and we know what your next step is, and and you're going to get there. And when you get there, um, we're trying to design systems that don't hold it against you that you weren't there last time we checked. If you're um, moving at a slower pace, how do you how do you move forward at a reasonable pace? Right? The goal is not to have like. 25 year old eighth graders. And I like to use the idea of, um, riding a bike. Um, and if it takes me like, you know, a month longer or a year longer to ride, than it takes you like, how long do you want to hold it against me once I figure out how to ride? And so I think that's kind of one of the main shifts, especially in elementary and middle school. I think maybe it's worth like naming a couple of the models, like, um, Yale education or like frameworks, like, um, in a coalition of essential schools where depth over breath um, is an important mindset and where the kind of idea of a project or deep and meaningful learning experiences is another kind of key way to design the learning the context is kind of the vehicle for learning the problem solving skills learning the communication skills and the analysis skills to explore a a problem um, or a situation in depth and then create something in response that's that's real Um, So, you know, EL Education has expeditions that really are bringing that real world and interdisciplinary nature into learning. Um, And that's true, I think, in like um, Coalition of Essential Schools um, where, you know, you might be doing kind of passion projects or group inquiry um, where there's real, real products created for real audiences, I think is the distinction. And that that becomes,
1: you know, the evidence of your learning. So let's talk about assessing learning in competency-based models. How does it look different from what many of us experienced in the form of things like quizzes and unit tests? I think in many of these systems,
0: um, often there's like a portfolio system where you're building a body of evidence for these cross-cutting competencies, really building enough evidence to say, um, I am able to do um this in in multiple ways and at a level where i have enough different demonstrations that um i'm confident that i could do this in a new and novel situation right so back to the communication example i think um, right in that third grade portfolio right i need to show my findings in a variety of ways so that means that i'm gonna have to have ideas about different things right and show my findings multiple times I might make some diagrams and, um, and reports. I might um, annotate that, right? I might create a video, right, using digital technologies. Um, so there's like these different ways. And I wouldn't necessarily do all of those in one sitting, right? Because we actually want to have multiple points that I can do this in different contexts. So that I think portfolio and project um, model that we see in some places is really um, important. And I think the other piece is that you talk about your learning to real audiences um, and that, you know, there's either a, a gateway or a capstone or other kinds of um, student-led presentations that talks about, here's what I've learned, right? Here's my evidence and here's how I know what I know. And h- maybe here's what I'm working on next too, right? That idea of goal setting. could happen annually, but often there's like bigger... Um, two-year periods or there are these moments that kind of give shape to the system so that, again, I might be working on my own pace, but I know that I'm working towards something that is culminating and bringing it together.
1: Um, My children went to an expeditionary learning school and we had passages, third grade, fifth grade, eighth grade. And I, I remember, I mean, passages was this big thing, right? For all the kids mentally, it was at the end of third grade. Like I don't get to move to the next, if I'm not done and the amount of intensity, you know, that went through, but they also brought, it was families, it was community members. There would be a Saturday where you would go and you would be put into groups and you would read three portfolios and you would put sticky notes, asking questions or saying, I really love this. And then the student got it back and got a chance to prepare for their sort of like their, yeah, their passages kind of interview. I did this probably for eight years was you would get a portfolio and, you know, sometimes the writing was really messy or it wasn't kind of whatever, and you would get the student and they just blew you away because of their ideas and their thinking. I feel like everyone who did that walked away um with absolutely no question about whether young people had learned um whether they cared about their learning whether they could think um but there was something really powerful about bringing the community in on that process which started to answer abstract questions that maybe even folks listening to this podcast might have like, oh, well, that sounds really, you know, amorphous. And like, how do you know kids are learning? And the answer becomes, because we just saw them, right? And we talked with them and we, they walked us through this stuff and we're like, of
0: course they learned. I mean, I think this just underscores that competency-based education and the framework itself, it needs to be a complete system, right? How you assess what you, how you get evidence of that um, is really important, right? And then what you're also kind of alluding to is how we, know whether it's working right from an equity perspective i think sometimes people feel like they might be letting go of like um rigor and really like that there are ways right to really show this and it's going deeper right it's not about coverage and recalling vast amounts of information perhaps but there is that evidence of rigorous thinking and you know that gets validated or affirmed right in this kind of relationship with the community, right, that parents and family and community members come in and they give feedback, right, and they ask questions, and so in that in that interaction, that is feedback for the learner, but it's also feedback on the system, right? That we can say, um, are we happy with the the level of uh, demonstration of learning that we that our students got to, and where could we support them better? Um, and I've heard. Um, different systems like the one you're describing, right? And been a part of those conversations where it's like, oh, we realize that We weren't really helping kids like talk about their learning, and we just included some practice and talked about what makes a good presentation. You know, we like it helped us develop this this piece of our system that we weren't supporting the learning fully enough, right? So it it is like then you can use that right to think about how are we explicit in teaching kids the strategies and skills that they need in order to really demonstrate at the levels that we want, and how do we help them be aware that this is part of what they're working towards? And I think you can take that further out, right? Because then if um, you know, you could have systems where outside people are giving that feedback, um, or you're scoring work from other places, right? And that's looking at work from other places or looking at work from within your school with other teachers is one of the most powerful learning experiences, right? It's a, it is a different kind of data, right? We think of like, yes, uh, this, uh, state test is going to tell us how we're doing, but if you really develop a good local assessment system, and it's a little bit of a leap of faith because doing portfolios feels very different than um covering the standards for the standardized tests. um but if you really do that well um the test just becomes extra information to validate that what you're doing is working in your system because you know right you've built a system and you know and i think that that's kind of part of the mindset shift as well is that um the external can serve a purpose but we um don't need to be completely passive right in building our learning system um It can be a
1: tool, but not sort of the be all end all judgment of that. If you go into our independent school sector and our private school sector, this is how the work is done. And there are opportunities for folks to go in and out of each other's schools to kind of have that external validation. The standardized testing becomes another data point, but it is not the driver. And so again, from an equity standpoint, these approaches, these models exist and they exist robustly. They exist less often in the public system in part because of the ways that systems and structures kind of make it hard, right? Which is why we're starting with this competency based lever. Could I ask one question just about multi-aged groupings and classrooms and how competency based education makes those feel more viable and whether that's on balance a net? positive, um, just in terms of what we know about development, learning, um, and kind of what you were talking about, the not yet idea, um, that if I'm with a teacher, I'm with a group for over two or three years, that mentally gives me a little bit more time to think about. So can you tell us a little bit about the intersection between multi-aged classes and groupings and competency-based work?
0: Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's a couple different elements that it brings out that relate to allowing learners to learn and and feel like they um are seen and belong in a system if so we haven't really talked about that but i think that multi-age groupings serve that purpose of relationship right it allows um a teacher a set of teachers to know students well and over time and not have to learn a new group of learners um every year. So I think that's like one aspect is just that from uh, kind of building relationships and belonging and really knowing students, like it's an asset. And I think the other piece is that it, if we can always be learning and developing, but we know that it's not just this even spread over time. And so I think also it's about having like models and peers, right, and seeing like I can be younger and good at something and and be a model, but I also can learn from um, from those who are ahead, right? Because you can think of that that experience, right? If I'm in a multi-age grouping. Your experience might kind of shift over time, right? Um, as you grow in that system and have opportunities to be a leader, to see where you're strong, and maybe to have a little bit more um, time and space and models to um, practice things that are that you are not yet there on. Um, so I think that those things lend itself. There's um, a school in Massachusetts called Parker Charter Essential School you know, you gate, they have, they have three divisions, right? And it's roughly like 7th and 8th, ninth and 10th and 11th and 12th. Um, but sometimes kids need more times. Most students, right, when they're at the end of their second year, like eighth grade, they will do their gateway or passage portfolios and presentations, but sometimes kids need longer and that's like also okay, right? So it's not so fixed that there's not that flexibility when it's needed. And so then when you need the flexibility, it's kind of okay. I think the other thing for secondary, especially the idea of our course structures, right? And how do we, if we want to shift toward away from, um, you know, a kind of time based, like definitive system, like when you start to shift into courses, right? It can be feel tricky to do that, right? So I just think it's worth like naming that there are a couple different approaches to that. Um, I think the more still kind of able to, converse with the rest of the system in our, you know, um, nine through 12 um, or K through 12 even now is like building 21. Um, I think Kettle Kettle Moraine, like some of their high schools also do this where kids learn in, in studios, um, and then they demonstrate competency. So, like different um, learning experiences, it might be like shorter, modular than courses. But you could be working on your like English portfolio of evidence, or you could be working on you know your social studies portfolio of evidence. So they're still organizing into it, but instead of taking like English one, I I might be um, learning about um, I don't know. Um, community organizing or like how you know how a school gets built in our district right And the process of like um, budgeting or something and I could then be um, getting English credit for writing something or communicating something or I could get some research credit or for for something else Um, or I could get engineering design credit for like um, you know designing a possible school based on feedback from the community. So there's sort of flipping it to say, it's about the competency. um, It's not about like the time. So that's like one model. And I think, but when you start to think about, I can have multiple opportunities and I'm building my portfolio of evidence, it opens up opportunities to to not only be like, oh, these are the ninth grade classes and these are the 10th grade classes.
1: Yeah, well, and you know, if I were to if I were to name an example that I think exists in the high school level, so big picture learning oh, yeah. would say right, quantitative reasoning, empirical reasoning, yeah. communication, social skills, personal skills. But no- noticing right that some students are going to want to do calculus because they really have an aspiration that requires calculus as part of their trajectory. But you can also do quantitative reasoning by taking business math um, or statistics or something else. But it also lets them take advantage of the fact that you can do dual enrollment, you can do online yes. classes, you can go to the local community college, right? It it opens up where the learning can happen because there's a framework, internships, all of it. Um, and they do the the sort of um, almost the translation on the back end. Um, just one more point on, on the multi-age groupings. I can't remember where I heard this, but it's always stuck with me. Um, human beings are not born in litters, And this idea that human beings, we are kind of multi-generational, multi-age beings, right? Like in our communities, in our homes, in our families, that is part and parcel of where we have always learned. And so bringing that back into the educational and learning experience of young people, um, where you, and and you put this really well, and I think Montessori, for example, in its three-year cycles, you name very explicitly, like in your first year, you're probably going to be learning, but who might be teaching you? It might be the student who's in their third year, which one makes them a leader, but it also allows them to reinforce their learning because they're teaching. So, but yeah, the idea of multi-generation or multi-age seems to fit a lot better with who human beings are. Putting all 12-year-olds in a room together seems like a recipe for disaster, actually, which is why <laughs> most people think middle school is such a mess, right? <laughs> like, um, there's no peer. I love going to summer camps, sleepaway summer camps, where you have like kids from ages 4 to 24 all sitting next to each other. And the kind of learning that happens in growth, I think, is just phenomenal. So... Um, so we're getting to the end. I just want to ask, um, you know, where is the U.S. on its journey towards competency-based education, especially when you think about the global landscape? Where are we as a as a nation on this? Yeah, that's
0: a great question. Someone once asked a similar, like, how long would it take to just be fully company-based? It's like, well, there's a lot of variables in there. I mean, I think... Um, you know, on, in one sense, I think we've made a lot of progress, right? I think it is much more whether people are talking about competency-based ex- explicitly or even just shifting to learner-centered or student-centered models is like an entry point into this, Um and thinking about um, you know deeper learning, and so I think some things that are promising are the number of like districts and states and schools that have profiles of a graduate or portraits of a graduate that are saying this is what the community wants from our graduates. And yes, the academics are there, and like we want them to be able to read and. Um, and like have that knowledge or have financial literacy, but it's a much more it, it paints the picture of a broader set of skills and dispositions um, that is more about um, a whole you know who a holistic way of like who are you becoming and what are you going to need to thrive in the world and that I think becomes a starting point for thinking about well what what does it look like in kindergarten right and building that progression and thinking in a different way. Now the actual process of building those systems, I think we have some great models. Um, and i think that one of the challenging pieces is it's not something you do with fidelity to a model to like a specific discrete thing it is very much like a process of what does our community want what do our learners need what can we learn from others in the research but how do we really build this with um like what i like to call like um you know implementation with integrity to our learners and to our community so it's it's not meant to be one size fits all for learners or for community. So I think it makes it a little bit harder to um, assess. And I think we're at a place where we have a bunch of examples, some of them like going way back, like Montessori and big picture learning has been around for a long time that are doing things radically different and getting results, often with learners that weren't successfully served by the existing system. Um, and so um, we have a bunch of models Um and i think there's still a lot of work to do to to really think about
1: what does this look like at scale um, and one one thing I will name, you know, like the British Columbia example, yeah. but also New Zealand, I Australia, in New Zealand, right? Yeah. In systems where there's a more centralized kind of piece, they've done some of these competency progressions and then say to local districts or schools, okay, now map the work that you're doing onto these and allowing that kind of flexibility. But that's obviously hard to do in the US given our decentralized system. But yeah. the other piece, and, and we'll just kind of end on this is, and you've alluded to this multiple times, right? Like, A competency, a shift to competency based when it's done well. And I think that's why maybe we keep coming back to models, established models like expeditionary learning or Montessori or big picture. They need to exist inside of a a coherent kind of instructional model or approach because that's part of where the questions around what's the balance around rigor and what does it mean to have kind of expectations, but also assessments that correspond and professional development. That allows educators to kind of do this and building the capacity of students. And so, just for those listening, we're going to be having a couple of other conversations with folks that really have been thinking about what are some of these instructional models that that have promise of allowing competency-based to sit inside of them and not putting all of the weight on individual educators or individual leaders to like create everything new every single time they want to do it. Um, so, yeah. That's so important. I I think about this like idea of a
0: like kind of continuum of implementation on different dimensions of like how transformative. I think we're almost at a place where we can start to organize in that way. Just being able to like unpack some models, right, and kind of see how they're doing different things in different ways. I think makes it a lot a lot easier, right, to think about. Oh well, what have we done, and where
1: do we want to get started if we make this shift
0: and we make that commitment in our community?
1: Yeah. Well, Lori, thank you so much for um, for your time. It was great to talk with you and look forward um, to keeping engaged and seeing the spread of competency-based education.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been um, really fun to, to to chat.
1: Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart Podcast is a project of grantmakers for education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors, if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of SMART, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A